All right. Well, good morning. I am ready for summer. I'll just say that. That's, I'll just leave it at that. Um, temperature Tuesday at Runza is going to be nice, though. They'll end up paying us to go get lunch, so that might be nice. Um, let's, let's start off in a word of prayer. Father God, we are so grateful that you've given us this church, that you've given us this day. God, we're even, we're even grateful for the, 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 the weather outside. Uh, it's, it's all things that you give to us, whether in sunshine or cold or rain or snow. We're just so grateful that you've given us this planet to live on and this, this building that we can then gather together in to stay warm and study your word and worship you. Father, I ask as we, as we study your word today, I ask that you would help us to have soft hearts, that you would help us to not just read what we say, not just be hearers of the word, God, but doers of your word. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help me to handle your word faithfully and true. I ask that you would make my words clear to the hearers so that uh, it would be your word flowing through me and not, not my own understanding, but yours. And most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his precious name that we pray. And the church said, okay, we're in chapter four on the home stretch of our study through Philippians. I had intended for this to be a four-week series. This is the ninth sermon that I've preached in Philippians. So as you can tell, we're a little bit behind, but that's okay. We're going through it slowly. We're, we're looking at the text with a microscope. And we're, in, we're on the home stretch now. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your phone, whatever it is you like to read God's Word in, we have Bibles uh, on the seats and the back shelf. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And I kind of want to back up just one or two verses uh, to get a little bit of context as to what we're going to be reading here in Philippians chapter 4. So, so back up to Philippians 3, verse 20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that power by which He is able to subject all things to himself. So then, my brothers and sisters, my dear friends whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. One thing it's important to notice when you're reading your Bible, the little chapter marks and the verse markings are not original to the text. Okay, so, so sometimes the, the chapters are just in a place where you're like, ah, I don't know, I feel like it's one big flow of thought. So that's why I had us back up a little bit and read uh, the end of chapter 3 so that we understand that this is a continuation of Paul's thought and a transition into the next thing. He says, stand in the Lord in this way. And as we talked about last week, the word this is referring to what? The thing he just got through talking about. He's saying, stand in the Lord as a citizen of heaven, not acting like a Roman citizen, not acting like citizens of the world, but conduct yourself in the way that a citizen of heaven should be acting. And what's fascinating is, is, is as 
as we read these verses, this word, this citizenship language that he uses is actually the exact same word he uses in, in the Greek we talked about a while back in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that phrase there, conduct yourselves in such a manner, literally means act as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I want you to keep your finger there on on chapter 1, verse 27, because we're actually going to go back to that verse several different times because Paul calls back to Philippians 1, 27. It's this payoff of this idea of what does it mean to be a citizen worthy of the gospel? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? One of the things we talk about uh, we talked about last week in our Tuesday night Bible study, and if you're not going to those, I highly encourage you to uh, join us with those because we, we dive into the text a little bit deeper. But on Tuesday, the question was brought up of, well, if you're a citizen of heaven, does that mean you can't be a citizen of our country or a citizen here on earth as well? We talked about things like, like the flag and having the American flag. Can you, can you do that? Can you say the national anthem? Can you participate in government? And there are some folks who would say, no, if you're a citizen of heaven, you're not allowed to become a citizen of a worldly nation. And I think that's a misguided attitude. I think it's, it's a little bit misguided. One of the things that, that uh, comes to mind with this whole idea of what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom is Jeremiah chapter 29, where the, the prophet is speaking to the Israelites before they go into Babylon. And one of the things that God says through Jeremiah is his work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. Did you catch that? God tells the Israelites, you're going to go away to Babylon. You're going to go away to a pagan heathen nation I want you to remain my people, but I want you to work for the betterment of your earthly citizenship, of your earthly city that you're living in. So you cannot, we can be citizens of God's kingdom and still pray and work for the betterment of the Babylon that we live in. We don't do that by hiding ourselves away, by not associating with the world at all. In fact, just the opposite. What what we are charged to do is to show the world the goodness of God's kingdom. In order to do that, we have to do two things. We have to act differently than the world does. And number two, we have to be present and visible in the world and recognize that the world is watching us. We have to stand in the Lord like this, standing firm in our convictions as citizens of heaven. And this word he uses in chapter 4, verse 1, stand in the Lord in this way, that the stand, it's a stand firm idea. And it's actually the exact same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel, so that whether I see you or not, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that's going to kind of be our theme as we're going through this next passage. And as we get into verse 2, the letter takes a little bit of a turn. It gets interesting. So I want to read to you chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where Paul says, I appeal to 
Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So one of the things that I've, I've said a couple of times when you read a letter, especially when you read a letter, you have to understand that what you are getting is, is equivalent to hearing one half of a phone call conversation. You can hear the person you're standing next to, but you don't know who's on the other end of the receiver or what they're saying in return. And this is one of those places in Paul's letters where that's absolutely evident. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, oh, by the way, Yodia and Syntyche, you guys should agree in the Lord. Who are these women? We have no idea. They don't come up anywhere else in the New Testament. They don't come up anywhere else in the rest of Paul's letters. They don't show up in historical accounts anywhere. They're just two women that we presume are in Philippi. What were they arguing about? Again, we have no idea. Whatever it was, Paul told them that they needed to get along. They needed to be agreeing in the Lord, but we don't know what the argument was about. And then he says, to you, faithful companion, help them. Who is this faithful companion who's supposed to help these women? We have no idea. None of these people are ever mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. They're not in the book of Acts. No other letters. All we know for certain from the text is that there are two women... They're disagreeing about something. They had at one point in time worked with Paul, and Paul is calling on somebody to help them. So what we can do when we're trying to pick apart the Bible and understand it and and really dive into it is we can think critically about it, and we we can use a couple of tools. We can, at the very least, maybe rule out some of the things that this is not. We can get some clues as to what this whole situation was about. And so first and foremost, these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, we can fairly safely say, based on the language Paul uses, where he says they've struggled together with me in the gospel ministry, along with Clement. Clement was a leader in the early church, by the way. That these women were prominent in the church in some way. They were acting in some type of leadership capacity, working with Paul in the ministry. He describes them as struggling together with them. We know from the book of Acts that the church in Philippi was originally met in a woman's house named Lydia. She was the head of the household who, who she was the first head of the household where the church met. We have to remember that the early church, it didn't look like this where there was a central building where everybody came, most of the early churches, they met in somebody's home. They took the Lord's Supper, and it looked a lot more like a potluck than it did, you know, the little plate with with the, the crackers and the juice. It was a meal. It was, hey, come on over to my house, and we'll have church, quote unquote. And in the early church, it was it was actually very common for women to be the heads of these households, especially if they were widows. I know this can be a touchy subject, um, and if you're interested, you and I, we can, we can come on after, after church and we can pull our Bibles out and look at the passages, but there are plenty of examples where women are serving in some sort of leadership capacity in the early church, and it seems to be that Yodia and Syntyche are this. They struggled with Paul. They contended with him side by side, which is actually... 
the exact same phrase that Paul uses in, what was it? 127, 127, there we go. I told you we're going to go back to this verse. It says, I should hear you standing in firm in one spirit, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's calling back to this verse quite a bit. What about their disagreement? We can, we can rule a couple of things out. Um, we can rule out the idea that this was just some sort of petty squabble between two women in the church. Um, we have to think about the context that Paul was in prison. They had to send somebody to fill him in on all of the important events going on in the church. And it, it seems very unlikely that this topic would come up in the letter if it was just some little petty squabble these women were having. You know, uh, oh, we, you bought the same shoes I did and, and showed me up with your shoes. And, and I don't think it was something like that. I think it was something important enough and serious enough that it warranted being written about in Paul's letter. But at the same time, I think we can rule out the idea that this was some sort of serious doctrine dispute. Paul tells them to agree in the Lord. In other words, Paul doesn't pick a side. If this was a serious major biblical issue or a doctrinal issue, Paul would have picked a side. He would have said, Yodia, you're right. Syntyche, you're wrong. And here's why. But he didn't do that. He told them, agree in the Lord. Be of the same mind is what the text literally says. Be of the same mind together in the Lord. Which is actually the exact same word Paul uses in 127, exactly, where he says, um, I should hear you were standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So we have this disagreement that's in the church. It's not a doctrine issue, but it's a serious issue. It's serious enough that it's threatening to split the church, perhaps. Paul talks about unity a lot in the letter to the Philippians. My guess is, if I'm going to put a guess on what I think this was about, it's probably either an authority issue, if maybe there were two women who were heads of household and then the church kind of combined, well, whose house do we meet at? Something like that. Because Paul talks a lot about submitting and being humble and not thinking of self. And so maybe it was, a, you know, whose house do we meet at type of thing. Or possibly it had something to do with how the church spent their money. Because later on here in, in chapter 4, Paul's going to talk a lot about the church and their giving of gifts and their, the way they spent their money in the gospel ministry. And I think those are two things that seem pretty likely to be a serious issue that would cause division in the church, but at the same time, it's not a doctrinal issue. So that's my guess. I don't know, though. Again, like I said, all of this is just thinking critically about the Bible, reading the text carefully, and, and trying to piece out what's going on. And then in verse 3, Paul says, Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. True companion, help them. Here's what's fascinating about this verse. One of the things that the Greek language does that the English language doesn't is, is Greek has two separate words for the plural version of the word you and the singular version. Like a you and a y'all. 
In English, we say you, and I could mean you, Ron, specifically, or I could say you, the church, and it's, it's only the context that tells us which one I'm talking about. Greek is nice because there's actually two different words to describe the singular or the plural you. And if you're reading a letter to the church, you can be fairly certain that 99 times out of 100, you're going to get the plural version. You're going to get the y'all because he's writing to the church. And so everything's in the plural. You all should have the same mind as Christ. You all have great faith. But here in verse 3, this one point in the letter, it's in the singular. You specifically. That is curious. Because that means Paul is talking to a specific individual. Who is he? We don't know. He calls him a true companion. The word there is, is literally, it's yoke fellow is the word. If you got the old King James, you'll read yoke fellow, which is a, it's an accurate translation, but nobody knows what a yoke fellow is, so it's not really helpful. <laughs> it's, it's a co-worker is what he's describing. Somebody who works beside me, like if you can imagine two oxen hooked up to the, the yoke pulling a wagon, those two oxen are yoke fellows. They're they're co-workers. They're working side by side. And again, if we, if we try to do some detective work, most scholars will tell you that most likely that he's talking to Epaphroditus. Um, the language here he uses to describe him, this co-worker language, um, is actually, funny enough, it's the exact same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 25. Sorry. <laughs> I planned that whole bit. I was so excited for that. Um, no, it's not in 127. It's in 225 where he says, I've considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister in my need. This co-worker language is the exact same thing. So I think it makes sense that he's probably talking to Epaphroditus. But again, we're hearing one half of the phone call. This is us just doing our best to piece these things together. If we assume it's Epaphroditus, here's what's fascinating to think about. Epaphroditus was the one who the church in Philippi had sent to Paul to deliver the gift that we're going to read about in chapter 4 next week and the message about what's going on in the church. Epaphroditus was the one that Paul sent back to the church in Philippi with the letter. Most likely, Epaphroditus was the one who read the letter out loud to the church. That's the way they did things back then. Fun fact, we know from other epistles of Paul that Paul didn't physically pen most of his own letters. He used what's called an emanuensis, where he, he sat there and he dictated what he wanted to say and had a scribe write down the letter. And if Epaphroditus was the one who came and visited, it stands to reason that Epaphroditus was the one who probably sat there with Paul and wrote down the letter to the Philippians. So from what we have so far, we can almost recreate that scene where Paul's in prison. We can imagine it where, where Paul's sitting there, he's in this cell, Epaphroditus shows up and manages to get visitation, and Paul's like, how are things going back in Philippi? And he's like, terrible, absolutely terrible. First of all, we're, we're worried sick about you being in prison. Everyone's anxious about 
the leadership, we really need you to come back. And, and, and if you're in prison, like what are we supposed to do if you die here in prison? On top of that, we're facing all types of pressures. We've got pressures from people trying to jump ship and worship the Roman gods. We've got pressure from these Judaizers who are coming and trying to, to, to cause the Gentiles to be circumcised. We're having this leadership crisis. Can you come see us or at the very least send Timothy? Paul, it was a wreck in the church. On top of the Judaizers wanting to circumcise the Gentiles, we've got these Gnostics, these Libertines, like we talked about last week, who are trying to tell everyone in the church, just do whatever you want. And if it's not enough of that, Yodia and Syntyche are fighting. They're having this big disagreement, and it's, it's likely to split the church, and we just don't know what to do. We're stressed out. We're worried about the church. We don't feel like we have the right people for the job. And so Paul dictates this letter. He says, come here. Epaphroditus, sit down. Grab that parchment. Here's what I want to say. He starts dictating the letter. And he gets to this point, and he's addressing all of these concerns the church is having. And then he says, also I say to you, true companion, help them. And Epaphroditus is like, did you mean you, or did you mean the plural version? You must have misspoke. I'll, I'll go ahead and write the, the plural version. And Paul's like, no. You. Help them. You don't need me. You don't need Timothy. You're a citizen of heaven. You're called for a higher purpose. You're called to help bring these two women together and keep the church one. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We have this little moment. And then Paul, he switches back to the plural again. Now he's talking to the whole church, or maybe he's just talking to these three individuals, Yodia, Syntyche, and Epaphroditus. We don't know for sure. But he says, let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. This is what I was talking about when I said, as, as citizens of heaven, we need to be visible in the world so that people look to the church and they see how we handle things, how we handle confrontations and that we handle things differently than what the world does. Let everyone see your gentleness. This is, a, this is from my, my Greek dictionary of the word that he uses here. The word is defined as not insisting on every right letter of law or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. And so it's this gentleness where we, where we, we have this idea where if we have things that aren't doctrine. They're not biblical, but they're serious issues. We should be yielding to one another on the non-biblical, non-doctrinal issues. We should be kind and courteous, not insisting that everyone thinks that I'm right and I get to do things, because that's how the world does things. The world loves strong leaders who stand up and say, I'm right, follow me, do whatever I say. And Paul says, don't do that. The reason God calls us to act as citizens of heaven is so that the world might see the church as a beacon of hope and look to us and say, this place is different. There's something different about these people. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want to 
I want to impart something very, very important about, about this passage. This is, this is one of those verses where as an individual reading my Bible, this is, this is comforting to me. Don't be anxious. Give your prayers to God. And, and as an individual Christian, one-on-one with Jesus, this thing warms me, my heart. Because I've, I've been in those situations where God has provided for me and I've had this overwhelming peace. I don't know if I've, I've told you all the, the story of how I came to become a Christian, but I wasn't always a Christian. I wasn't raised in the church. Um, I was for most of my life until I was a, an adult in my, my early to mid-20s. I was an atheist. And, and I was in a situation where... Uh, my wife and I were just in a dire situation, um, and we were walking around town trying to clear our heads and trying to understand how we were going to handle this dire situation, and we were like, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to manage? And I, I heard the voice, like as clear as you standing here talking to me today, I heard a voice that said, follow me, I'll help you. And the old me, the atheist me, was like, Okay, I guess I believe in God now. And that was the walk. That was the beginning of my walk where God said, don't be anxious, rely on me, follow me, I'll help you. And so this passage, I can, I can relate to this. I've had those moments where my stress and my pain and my anxiety and my worry and my grief and my struggles, and I've had to take all of that stuff and lay them down at the foot of the cross and understand that giving my prayers and petitions to God is what I need. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard my heart and my mind. Isn't that beautiful? That's only this much of this verse. Because if we stop there and we think about our individual relationship with God and what God can do for me personally, I think we're missing the boat entirely. Remember what I said, this this is a letter to a church. This is a letter where overwhelmingly Paul is talking in the plural. This is not a letter to one specific person where Paul's trying to comfort him or her. He's writing to the community. So this is why this whole citizenship stuff is so important. To understand this letter in terms of citizenship. Because you cannot be a citizen of one. I think what we've done in the modern church, in my opinion, is we've watered down the gospel into sound bites that are pleasing to the individual. Has anybody ever had a, a gospel tract? Anybody ever been handed one of those or handed out one of those? There are these little pieces of paper that supposedly are, are the gospel, right? And they've got all these verses on it. And the, a gospel tract is usually it says something like, um, here are the facts. Each person individually is a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus Christ died for you. And if you put your faith in him as your personal savior, you will be saved and you'll go to heaven. You flip the card over. It says, read this little prayer. Congratulations. Now you're a Christian. You're saved. You did the thing. You can go to heaven now. That's not the gospel. That's me language. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus saved me. I'm going to say this little prayer to Jesus and now I'm saved. That's your individual salvation, your quote-unquote ticket into heaven, which I, I despise that language, but that's, 
That is a fraction of what the full gospel is. It is a component of it. But the gospel, the full gospel message is Jesus Christ's institution of a kingdom. The full gospel message is Jesus Christ defeating the powers of sin and death for the entire world, instituting this heavenly kingdom in which we all get to come together and become citizens. The full gospel is Jesus Christ instituting the church and putting them on mission to go out collectively into the world and participate with him in the redemption of the world. He didn't just die on the cross so that you and me could individually pray a little prayer and accept him as our personal savior and go to heaven. That's not it. The scripture I read this morning in Peter, I'm going to read the whole thing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim, by the way, that's in the plural in Peter, so that you all may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you all out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians. In the Greek, he says Gentiles there. He's talking about those who are not God's people. So that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. That's not a gospel message that's spoken to the individual on a little three-by-five card where you say a little prayer and now you're a Christian and you can go home and live a happy life content knowing that you're just going to get to go to heaven one day. That's a gospel message where Jesus is raising an army. He's recruiting an army to go out into the world and help to redeem the world. And when we take up our cross to follow him, when we acknowledge his kingship, his lordship over us, when we are immersed into him, when we die to ourselves and become one with the body, the community of faith, we take this oath of citizenship where we enter into something bigger than ourselves. And so as, as comforting as it is for me to read these, these verses, these words, where he says, don't be anxious about anything. As comforting as it is for me to read this as an individual, when I understand it through the lens of citizenship, through the lens of being part of God's kingdom, something bigger than myself, it takes on so much bigger of a meaning. He says in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. 
And what you all learned and received and heard and saw in me, you all do these things and the God of peace will be with you. Yodia and Syntyche, they were a test case, a test example of what it looks like for an individual to be part of God's kingdom and to act like a citizen. Epaphroditus was a test case example of what it looks like for a citizen, somebody who's part of the family, to operate. And Paul's encouraging, encouraging them. Yodia, Syntyche, stop thinking about me and be of the same mind. Be one. Be united. Throw off what I think. And put on what Christ thinks. It's no longer me. When you become a follower of Christ, it's no longer me and what God can do for me. Because I'm a citizen. We have fellow citizens that we collectively together are the church. Whatever is true... Whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is pure, lovely, and commendable, we, as the body of Christ, should think about these things. We should be of the same mind because that's what it looks like for us to be citizens of God's kingdom. We pray with me. Father God, we want to acknowledge you. We want to acknowledge your son as our king, as our Lord. We just want to acknowledge the fact that we're not in charge of our own citizenship anymore. We're not our own nation all to ourselves, but we are your people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, chosen, set apart, and sent into the world on mission. And and Father, we just ask that you would help to give us the strength that we collectively need to do that. We ask that you would help us to stop thinking about me and start being as the same mind with one another in order to do that, to be the same mind as Christ. We thank you for our individual salvation. We thank you for that small component of the gospel, Lord. But more importantly, we thank you for your institution of a kingdom. And we ask that you would help us to conduct ourselves as citizens worthy of that gospel. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.